are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, March 11th, 2023 reading of the Denver Post. My name is Doug Crane. Today, we will be reading from the following main articles. Silicon Valley Bank, FDIC seizes institution after its historic failure by Ken Sweet, the Associated Press. Legislature, GOP's filibuster sought to stall gun safe drug use bills by Seth Clayman, the Denver Post. Centennial, city officials in a pickle. Noise complaints about pickleball explode as sports popularity goes into hyperdrive by John Aguilar, the Denver Post. Gardner Smith, John Doe found in 1970 ID'd as lost legendary skier. Remains had been in Leadville Grave, then morgue, before CBI's forensic breakthrough. By Bruce Finley, the Denver Post, and following up with miscellaneous articles. Silicon Valley Bank, FDIC, seizes institution after its historic failure. By Ken Sweet, the Associated Press. New York. U.S. regulators rushed to seize the assets of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday after a run on the bank marking the largest failure of a financial institution since Washington Mutual collapsed at the height of the financial crisis more than a decade ago. Silicon Valley Bank, the nation's 16th largest bank, failed after depositors, mostly technology workers and venture capital-backed companies, hurried to withdraw money this week as anxiety over the bank's health spread. It is the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. The bank had deep ties to Silicon Valley industries and startups. Y Combinator, an incubator startup that has launched companies such as Airbnb, DoorDash, and Dropbox, has referred hundreds of entrepreneurs to the bank. This is an extinction-level event for startups, Y Combinator CEO Gary Tan said. I'd literally have been hearing from hundreds of our founders asking for help on how they can get through this. They are asking, do I have to furlough my workers? Tan estimated nearly one-third of Y Combinator startups won't be able to make payroll at some point in the next month if they can't access their money. He said he is asking regulators and lawmakers if these startups can be eligible for financial aid. Silicon Valley was heavily exposed to the tech industry, but there is little chance of chaos spreading in the broader banking sector like in the months leading up to the Great Recession more than a decade ago. The biggest banks, those most likely to cause a widespread economic meltdown, have healthy balance sheets and plenty of capital. In 2007, the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression rippled across the globe after mortgage-backed securities tied to ill-advised housing loans collapsed in value. The panic on Wall Street led to the demise of Lehman Brothers, a firm founded in 1847. Because major banks had extensive exposure to one another, it led to a cascading breakdown in the global financial system, putting millions out of work. There has been unease in the banking sector all week, and the news of Silicon Valley Bank's distress pushed shares of almost all financial institutions lower on Friday, shares that had tumbled by double digits since Monday. Silicon Valley Bank's failure arrived with incredible speed, with some industry analysts on Friday suggesting it was a good company and still likely a wise investment. 
Silicon Valley Bank executives were trying to raise capital early Friday and find additional investors. However, trading in the bank's shares was halted before the stock market's opening bell because of extreme volatility. Shortly before noon Eastern time, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation moved to shutter the bank. Notably, the FDIC did not wait until the close of business to seize the bank, as is typical in an orderly wind-down of a financial institution. The FDIC could not immediately find a buyer for the bank's assets, signaling how fast depositors had cashed out. The White House said that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is watching closely. The White House sought to reassure people that the banking system is much healthier than it was in the Great Recession. Our banking system is in a fundamentally different place than it was, you know, a decade ago, said Cecilia Rouse, leader of the White House Council of Economic Advisers. The reforms that were put in place back then really provide the kind of resilience that we'd like to see. Silicon Valley Bank had $209 billion in total assets at the time of the failure, the FDIC said. It was unclear how much of its deposits were above the $250,000 insurance limit, but previous regulatory reports showed that much of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits exceeded that limit. The FDIC said that deposits below the $250,000 limit would be available Monday morning. The bank still appeared stable this year, but on Thursday it announced plans to raise up to $1.75 billion to strengthen its capital position. That sent investors scurrying, and shares plunged 60%. They rocketed lower again Friday before the opening of the NASDAQ, where it is traded. As its name implied, Silicon Valley Bank was a major financial conduit between the technology sector, its founders, and startups, as well as its workers. It was seen as good business sense to develop a relationship with the bank if a founder wanted to find new investors or go public. Conceived in 1983 by co-founders Bill Biggerstaff and Robert Medeiros during a poker game, the bank has leveraged its Silicon Valley roots to become a financial cornerstone in the tech industry. Nearly half of the U.S. technology and healthcare companies that went public last year after getting their early funding from venture capital firms were Silicon Valley customers, according to the bank's website. The bank also boasts of its customers' connections to several well-known tech companies such as Shopify, ZipRecruiter, and one of the leading VC firms, Anderson Horowitz, founded by web browser pioneer Mark Anderson. Bill Tyler, the CEO of TWG Supply in Grapevine, Texas, said he first realized something was wrong when his employees were texting him at 6.30 a.m. Friday that they didn't receive their paychecks. TWG, which has just 18 employees, had already sent the money for its paychecks to a payroll services provider, Rippling PEO, which had used Silicon Valley Bank. He was scrambling to figure out how to pay his workers. We're waiting on roughly $27,000, he said. It's already not a timely payment. It's already an uncomfortable position. I don't want to ask any employees to say, hey, can you wait until mid-next week to get paid? Legislature. GOP's filibuster sought to stall gun safe drug use bills by Seth Clayman, the Denver Post. 
More than 16 hours after they entered the House chamber, Colorado lawmakers advanced two controversial bills regulating guns and drug use in the early morning hours Friday, ending a marathon session of often emotional debate about how to best save lives amid dueling public health crises. House Republicans had pledged to fight the Democrat-backed bills, one of which would enact a minimum three-day waiting period for buying a gun, and the other would allow local governments to open safe-use drug sites. They made good on those threats Thursday. Debate on the gun measure began at 1.30 p.m. and ended at 2.30 the next morning. Republicans rejected a deal to end debate in exchange for a modest amendment as midnight approached, and Democrats shot down more than a dozen Republican attempts to change the gun bill. Ultimately, the waiting period bill passed with the slight change that Republicans had rejected hours before, which will delay when the bill, should it be signed into law, becomes effective. The safe-use bill passed four hours after at 6.30 a.m., also with modest changes. The debate fell on the midpoint of the 120-day session, and it hit upon two core issues for Republicans and Democrats alike. One is guns. Democrats, who hold firm majorities in the House and Senate, unveiled a suite of four firearm reform bills in late February, all four advanced through committee this week after lengthy hearings, and Democrats are now seeking to move them swiftly through the Capitol. The other three gun bills, to expand the state's red flag law, institute age limits on gun purchases, and to make it easier to sue gun manufacturers and sellers, were heard before the full Senate on Friday. Republicans and their allies have vowed to filibuster and, acknowledging that the bills are still likely to pass, file lawsuits to block their implementation. The second issue, whether to clear the way for safe-use sites to open in willing municipalities, harkens to last year's bruising fight over tightened criminal penalties and expanded harm reduction services for fentanyl users and dealers. The debate early Friday saw Democrats, such as sponsor Representative Elizabeth Epps, cast the sites as a vital resource to keep drug users alive until they were ready to seek treatment. Republicans, meanwhile, derided the proposal, which would not open any sites itself, as enabling of illegal activity and an overreach into rural Colorado. Thursday's filibuster was reminiscent of last year's 24-hour standoff over the Reproductive Health Equity Act, which enshrined and protected abortion access in state law. Thursday's debate stretched so long that Democratic Majority Leader Monica Duran announced Friday morning that the House would break for the day but return today, an atypical burst of weekend work for lawmakers who often depart the Capitol for their homes across Colorado every Friday. That's a particular wrinkle for Republicans. The state party's central committee, which includes lawmakers who will now be compelled to return to the House, is set to meet today and vote for their next party leader. A Democratic House spokesman said Friday morning that the move wasn't punitive and that the House had work it needed to get done. Democratic Representative Shannon Byrd echoed that sentiment and said that exhausted lawmakers couldn't work Friday and needed to make up time over the weekend. Going into the Thursday afternoon filibuster session, aides stocked up desks with snacks. Republican lawmakers stacked piles of research, amendments, and filibuster material against a wall, and a spokesman said some members had brought a change of clothes. 
The gun bill, cast by supporters as an effort to curtail suicides by giving those in crisis a cooling-off period, ate up most of the day and evening. Representatives from both parties described personal experience with suicide. Representatives from both parties described personal experience with suicide. Representative Stephanie Vigil, a Colorado Springs Democrat, said she had attempted to kill herself and that the only reason she hadn't is because she had chosen a less lethal means and was able to stop. While Republicans had said the bill wouldn't solve the problem, Vigil countered that saving one life would be enough. For Republicans, the filibuster was a statement to those inside and outside the Capitol of their commitment to fight what they see as infringements on the Second Amendment. Minority Leader Mike Lynch said Democrats aren't focusing on the real issue, mental health, and were instead devoting weeks of attention to the bright, shiny policy of gun reform. Their speeches, which often stretched for an hour at a time, ranged from criticisms of the bill's constitutionality and its impact on self-defense to the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt and the Rwandan genocide. Representative Ken DeGraff, a Colorado Springs Republican, warned that the distinction between a citizen and a slave is one is armed and one is not, and his colleagues recounted stories of women who had used guns to defend themselves from would-be attackers. As Republicans brought a spree of amendments that would allow domestic violence or sexual assault victims to circumvent the three-day waiting period, Penrose Republican Representative Stephanie Luck defended the need for the lengthy debate. It's not time-wasting, she said. This is our job. We have to figure it out. Is this policy workable? Luck had been one of the first Republicans to speak earlier that day, nearly eight hours before, when she expressed support for the gun bill's sponsor, Representative Judy Amabile. The Boulder Democrat had described how her son had been in an acute mental health crisis and attempted to buy a gun. Only Amabile's intervention and the compassion of the gun shop owner had stopped the sale. Although Republicans had said that guns are only one way for a person to die by suicide, Amabile said her son was still alive because he had used less lethal means in previous attempts. According to state data, 740 of the 1,370 suicides in Colorado in 2021 involved firearms. I don't expect any of you to care whether my son lives or dies, Amabile told her colleagues. That's not your job. But I do think it's our job here in the legislature to do everything we can to try to prevent preventable suicides. In response, Luck told her that although she disagreed with Amabile on this policy, she cared about her colleague's son. Epps, the sponsor of the Safe Use Site bill, with fellow Democratic Representative Jenny Wilford, cast her proposal in a similar preventative light as a tool to save lives amid a public health crisis. The bill, if passed, would let local governments decide whether to open the sites, which allow users to consume illicit substances under supervision in facilities that typically feature information about various treatment and support services. Republicans, meanwhile, argued that the sites will only encourage drug use while inviting crime into the neighborhoods in which a facility would open. Akron Republican Representative Richard Holtorf likened those with substance use disorders to chemical slaves, which prompted Wilford to read the dictionary definition of slave and ask for less divisive language. 
Holtor said demand for drugs will go up should any sites open and that rural Colorado wasn't ready or interested in them. Allowing people to safely use drugs, he said, would act as a barrier to them receiving treatment. I understand the bill sponsors think this is a solution to this problem or a partial solution to a problem, he said. But how do you get the people entrapped in this horrible dependency to break the shackles and free themselves from this bondage? Supporters have long pushed back on the suggestion that the facilities enable drug use, and research from New York City shows that users would have used their drugs elsewhere, most of them in public, had centers not been available there. Epps said that a drug user can't enter treatment if they overdose alone. You cannot go to rehab if you're not alive, she said. You cannot get help or heal or get well or mend relationships or make amends or be forgiven if you're not alive. Centennial. City officials in a pickle. Noise complaints about pickleball explode as sports popularity goes into hyperdrive. By John Aguilar, the Denver Post. Research shows that continuous impulsive sound, such as pickleball paddle impact with a pickleball, makes it difficult to relax, concentrate, or sleep soundly without disturbance as each impact heard draws attention and creates distraction. And with that passage from an ordinance before the Centennial City Council this month, this southern suburb will consider a six-month ban on the construction of any outdoor pickleball courts within 500 feet of homes. Centennial's potential moratorium comes as pickleball, a mashup of tennis and ping-pong that is easy to learn and highly social, explodes in popularity. In February, the Sports and Fitness Industry Association reported that 8.9 million people played pickleball last year, nearly doubling 2021's 4.8 million, making it the fastest-growing sport in the United States for the third year running. But with that growth has come an increasing number of coast-to-coast stories of sonic assault and descent into the doldrums of dissonance, as the sound of hard paddles repeatedly smacking perforated plastic balls sends some over the edge. This month, the Boston Globe reported on neighbors in Wellesley, Massachusetts, upset about the loud and repetitive racket of pickleball play in their neighborhood. Across the country, in the Portland, Oregon suburb of West Lynn, a resident told the city council last month that the noise from nearby pickleball matches impacted his neighbor worse than the neighbor's cancer. Just a few miles away, in Lake Oswego, city officials in January converted pickleball courts into tennis courts after receiving numerous noise complaints. A Centennial spokeswoman told the Denver Post this week that the city has no regulations in place specific to pickleball, but is looking to avoid the fights over noise that have become widespread. Centennial said Alice's Wittern had received one proposal from a developer to build courts near homes. Therefore, the city wants to proactively study the noise impacts specific to commercial outdoor pickleball courts within 500 feet of neighborhoods, which is why a six-month moratorium is being considered, she said. City leaders this week forwarded the measure on first reading and will take a final vote March 21st. If the moratorium passes, it will last until September 30th. It's insane, Ryan Bailey, deputy director of Arapaho Park and Recreation District, said of the appetite for pickleball, and it keeps growing. 
Neither Recreation District that serves Centennial, Arapaho, or South Suburban Parks and Recreation currently has outdoor pickleball courts in the city. But Bailey said there are four indoor courts at the Trails Recreation Center in Centennial, and they get good use. There are two outdoor pickleball courts in Centennial's Piney Creek neighborhood, which are run by the Homeowners Association. A request for comment from the HOA's president was not returned. Centennial is reviewing plans for Camp Pickle, a proposed 70,000-square-foot facility with 14 indoor and outdoor pickleball courts and restaurant and bar seating throughout. Wittern said the project wouldn't fall under the city's moratorium because it is not slated to be near residential areas. Centennial's ordinance says the sound produced by paddle impact with a pickleball is an impulsive sound, which some acoustical engineers say is near the most sensitive frequency range of human hearing and is known to create greater annoyance than other forms of sound. Braxton Boren, assistant professor of audio technology at American University who has analyzed audio from an outdoor pickleball match, said the noise from a pickleball paddle will vary depending on its style and build. But in general, they will be higher pitched than for tennis rackets as higher frequencies are generated by shorter wavelengths of sound, so smaller rackets will usually make higher-pitched sounds, he said. This means that an equivalent level of sound pressure from a pickleball racket will, all else being equal, be perceived a little louder than a tennis racket in most cases. Boren said there haven't been many studies on the health effects of long-term exposure to pickleball, but he surmised that it's very unlikely that these are sound levels that could cause hearing loss or direct harm to people nearby. However, there are a number of non-auditory factors, such as annoyance, stress, or sleep disturbance, which could be quite likely for residents who are very close to an outdoor court, he said. Random, impulsive-type sounds are generally more annoying than continuous background sounds. In North Arvada lies Colorado's largest outdoor pickleball facility, a busy 24-court complex at the Sims Street Recreation Center. Katie Grokey director of community services for the Apex Park and Recreation District, said there is a huge demand for pickleball facilities in the city. The Sims Street courts were built in phases starting in 2013, she said. A half dozen homes in the Sunset Mesa neighborhood back right up to the court. A knock on several doors yielded somewhat surprising responses about the cacophony in their midst. We don't mind it at all said Angela Kemper, who enjoys watching and occasionally heckling pickleball tournaments from her deck, cocktail in hand. It's like the ocean. It's just kind of background noise. Three doors down, Mike Arp is also unbothered by the activity that goes from sun up to sun down any day the weather permits. His two young children also shrugged off the noise, quickly returning to a fight with plastic swords in the front hallway. Arp bought his home in Sunset Mesa in 2020. It's never come up that it's been a nuisance, Arp said of his neighbors. It just kind of sneaks in. A spokesman for Arvada said the city has received no complaints about noise from the Sims Street courts. Sam Brown, founder of the Westminster-based American Pickleball Association, said he's seen the strong response to Pickleball Food Pub, an indoor pickleball facility with bar and party room that he opened in a Westminster strip mall last year. 
He's already attracted more than 12,000 members in the 13 months it's been open. We have people who have never been athletic in their lives. Overweight, tall, short, they can all play, said Brown, who turns 83 this month. Noise notwithstanding, Brown said there's no doubt about the trajectory of a game that began in 1965 in Washington State and got its biggest boost during the pandemic. It's so social and so much fun, and there's more trash talk among the old farts than in an NBA game, he said. It's like a religion and a disease. You get addicted to it. Gardner Smith John Doe, found in 1970, ID'd as lost legendary skier. Remains had been in Leadville, Grave, then Morgue, before CBI's forensic breakthrough. By Bruce Finley, the Denver Post. A body found in the tundra atop Colorado's Independence Pass in 1970 has been identified as legendary ski racer Gardner Paul Smith, a beat-era adventurer who, before he went missing at age 39, was revered as a free and easy companion. Whatever is right, friend, he would say. Now the daughter he abandoned, who since childhood has wrestled with a frustrating mystery, is appealing for details from the end of his life, chasing winter worldwide. Obviously, it is good to have closure, said daughter Jean Gaeta, a 60-year-old Texas real estate agent, in an interview this week. I feel sad that he seemed to have had a lonely, tragic ending. I'm still sorting it out. I am just sad. Sad that he was alone, said Gaeta, who interpreted his whatever-is-right-friend expression as evidence of a kind and tolerant man who accepted others' thinking. Smith's exhumed remains sat for years in the Leadville office of a former coroner until last month when Colorado Bureau of Investigation forensic genetic analysts finally identified the remains using a DNA sample and genealogical sleuthing. Smith, who grew up in California at Boreal Mountain in the Sierra Nevada, became one of the nation's fastest skiers. He went to the University of Nevada and joined the Army in 1951, serving as a paratrooper before an honorable discharge in 1957. He emerged as a fearless free thinker inclined toward cutting-edge pursuits, according to his friends, family members, and old news stories. He and fellow ski racer Dick Book flew in a small crop duster plane, which had to stop every two hours for refueling, as far south as Chile. They landed during a revolution around 1954 in Guatemala, where authorities seized the plane and temporarily jailed them. On another flight, they'd landed and run out of money near Acapulco, Mexico, when they saw cliff divers with U.S. tourists looking on. They reckoned they could dive from higher up on the cliffs into the ocean and did so, then collected from the tourists the fuel funds they needed to move on. Book died in a 1957 plane crash. But in 1961, Smith had flown south again to Argentina, where he met Jennifer Don Andrews, a British woman who grew up in neighboring Uruguay. They married, and he became a father in 1962, before a divorce six years later. He drifted, moving between California and Aspen. A postcard to his mother, dated November 12, 1969, marked as the last she heard from him, read, I am doing all right. Don't worry. Love, Gardner. 
The CBI breakthrough begins to resolve a long-running Colorado high country mystery, the identity of the body found in June 1970 atop Independence Pass, which closes during winter, and what happened. An arm and parts of ribs were missing from the corpse, which was cloaked in a sweatshirt, khaki trousers, multiple layered socks with an unworn sock pulled over the left shoe, and $7 with a razor in a pocket. The body likely had been out all winter in the snow, authorities concluded from its location and condition, after a state snowplow driver found it under rocks along switchbacks just east of the 12,095-foot summit. The remains became known as the Independence Pass John Doe and were buried beneath a metal unidentified male marker in Leadville's Evergreen Cemetery, where it ranked as the newest of 41 unidentified bodies. Cemetery caretaker John Pearson, a Vietnam War veteran, noticed the marker. So did Boulder County-based cold case researcher Sylvia Petham, who contacted CBI and pushed Lake County's sheriff to exhume the remains around 2013 to enable DNA sampling. Then Smith's remains in a casket sat in the office of former Lake County coroner Shannon Kent. As the result of other unrelated mishandling of the dead, Kent has been jailed. He was sentenced last month to 180 days in jail for an unlawful cremation and was found guilty by a jury in 2021 of second-degree official misconduct. He surrendered his license to operate funeral homes in 2020 after a state probe. If this was your father, would you want his skeletal remains sitting around some coroner's office all these years, Petham said? Part of my desire to identify people is to give them respect. No record of an autopsy has surfaced, and CBI officials say there is no evidence of foul play. Speculation about how he died there in the tundra persists. Maybe he hiked up there with the intent to hike back down. Maybe he got caught in a sudden storm, and suddenly it got very cold and he got disoriented, Petham said. You wouldn't think it would happen to a professional skier. You'd think he would have had more sense, would have worn warmer clothes, Growing up in California, Smith learned skiing at the Boreal Ski Area that his father, Paul Smith, had developed. On the University of Nevada ski team, he trained fiercely, perfecting his technique once running giant slalom courses on cross-country skis as an experiment for honing his balance. He had survived a high-speed crash into a pole that broke his back. Smith was compact and powerful, walking with the resolve and posture of a Marine sergeant, wrote Dick Dorworth, a ski racer himself, a longtime friend ten years younger, who in 1983 wrote a ski magazine profile, The Mystery of Gardner Smith, wondering where he had gone. Beyond skiing, Smith was a humanist, Dorworth wrote. He was curious about what it meant to be a human being. His racing glories of the 1950s, when he won a Rocher Cup and other trophies, faded. And in the 1960s, Gardner began to drift, according to Dorworth, who drew from conversations they'd had in Aspen. He landed in various parts of the world, and Gardner acquired a fascination with psychic phenomena and the latent powers of the mind, Dorworth wrote in the profile. Dorworth refused to accept Smith was dead, hoping he was out there somewhere practicing psychic slalom on cross-country mind waves. He'd last seen him in 1968 when he was living on the road and needed a place to crash and stayed for a week. 
The clear intelligence and honest intensity I knew and admired as a boy were still active and evident. Some folks thought Gardner had slipped over the line of sanity, not me. He looked terrible, but there was nothing wrong with his mind that a healed heart, some rest, and a little attentive encouragement wouldn't cure. His daughter grew up without him, wondering why and where he had gone. Gaina's mother, Jennifer Andrews, the ex-wife Smith met in Argentina, wouldn't share anything. Through her death in 1994, she said, it was a difficult time for us as mother and daughter. She kept it so private. The identification of her father has catapulted Gaeta anew into a flurry of searching through old photos, news clippings, and letters trying to make sense. Smith had invented a ski pole grip and double-glass twin-dough ski goggles of the sort now widely used, and Gaeta last week found correspondence showing how he had tried to market these with major gear companies. He just couldn't get to that next step. She plans to cremate the remains before a ceremony at Boreal. It will be good for him to have his ashes scattered and be with his parents where he first fell in love with skiing, she said. I am looking for somebody who can help me fill in the blanks. Diplomacy. Iran, Saudis to resume relations. Breakthrough was negotiated with China. By John Gambrell, the Associated Press. Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed Friday to reestablish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies after seven years of tensions. The major diplomatic breakthrough negotiated with China lowers the chance of armed conflict between the Mideast rivals, both directly and in proxy conflicts around the region. The deal struck in Beijing this week amid its ceremonial National People's Congress, represents a major diplomatic victory for the Chinese as Gulf Arab states perceive the United States slowly withdrawing from the wider Middle East. It also comes as diplomats have been trying to end a long war in Yemen, a conflict in which both Iran and Saudi Arabia are deeply entrenched. The two countries released a joint communique on the deal with China, which brokered the agreement as President Xi Jinping was awarded a third five-year term as leader earlier Friday. Videos on Iranian state media showed Ali Shamkani, the secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council, with Saudi National Security Advisor Mossad bin Mohammed al-Aiban and Wang Yi, China's most senior diplomat. The joint statement calls for re-establishing ties and reopening embassies to happen within a maximum period of two months. A meeting by their foreign ministers is also planned. In the video, Wang could be heard offering wholehearted congratulations on the two countries' wisdom. Both sides have displayed sincerity, he said. China fully supports this agreement. The United Nations welcomed the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement and thanked China for its role. Good neighborly relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia are essential for the stability of the Gulf region, UN spokesperson Stephanie Zhuzharik said at UN headquarters. China, which last month hosted Iran's hardline president, Ibrahim Raisi, is also a top purchaser of Saudi oil. Xi visited Riyadh in December for meetings with oil-rich Gulf Arab nations crucial to China's energy supplies. Iran's state-run IRNA news agency quoted Shamkani as calling the talks clear, transparent, comprehensive, and constructive. 
removing misunderstandings and the future-oriented views and relations between Tehran and Riyadh will definitely lead to improving regional stability and security, as well as increasing cooperation among Persian Gulf nations and the world of Islam for managing current challenges, Shamkani said. Al-Aban thanked Iraq and Oman for mediating between Iran and the kingdom, according to his remarks carried by the state-run Saudi press agency. While we value what we have reached, we hope that we will continue the constructive dialogue, the Saudi officials said. Tensions long have been high between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The kingdom broke ties with Iran in 2016 after protesters invaded Saudi diplomatic posts there. Saudi Arabia had executed a prominent Shiite cleric with 46 others days earlier, triggering the demonstrations. That came as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, then a deputy, began his rise to power. The son of King Salman, Prince Mohammed, previously compared Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah al-Khamenei to Nazi Germany's Adolf Hitler and threatened to strike Iran. Since then, the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from Iran's nuclear deal with world powers in 2018. Iran has been blamed for a series of attacks after that, including one targeting the heart of Saudi Arabia's oil industry in 2019, temporarily having the kingdom's crude production. Though Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi rebels initially claimed the attack, Western nations and experts blamed Tehran. Iran denied it and also denied carrying out other assaults later attributed to the Islamic Republic. Religion also plays a key role in their relations. Saudi Arabia, home to the cubed-shaped Kaaba that Muslims pray toward five times a day, has portrayed itself as the world's leading Sunni nation. Iran's theocracy, meanwhile, views itself as the protector of Islam Shiite minority. The two powerhouses have competing interests elsewhere, such as in the turmoil in Lebanon and in the rebuilding of Iraq following the U.S.-led 2003 invasion that toppled Saddam Hussein. The leader of the Iranian-backed Lebanese militia and political group Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, said the agreement could open new horizons in Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. Iraq, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates also praised the accord. Top Pakistani diplomat Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, chair of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation's Council of Foreign Ministers, praised China for encouraging dispute resolution rather than on encouraging perpetual disputes. Christian Coates Uriksen, a research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute, who long has studied the region, called Saudi Arabia, reaching the deal with Iran, came after the United Arab Emirates reached a similar understanding with Tehran. This dialing down of tensions and de-escalation has been underway for three years, and this was triggered by Saudi acknowledgement in their view that without unconditional U.S. backing, they were unable to project power vis-a-vis Iran and the rest of the region, he said. Prince Mohammed, now focused on massive construction projects at home, likely wants to finally pull out of the Yemen war as well, Ulrichsen added. Instability could do a lot of damage to his plans, he said. The Houthis seized Yemen's capital, Sana'a, 
in 2014 and forced the internationally recognized government into exile in Saudi Arabia. A Saudi-led coalition armed with U.S. weaponry and intelligence entered the war on the side of Yemen's exiled government in 2015. Years of inconclusive fighting created a humanitarian disaster and pushed the Arab world's poorest nation to the brink of famine. A six-month ceasefire, the longest of the Yemen conflict, expired in October. Negotiations have been ongoing recently, including in Oman, a longtime interlocutor between Iran and the U.S. Some have hoped for an agreement ahead of the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, which begins later in March. Iran and Saudi Arabia have held intermittent talks in recent years, but it wasn't clear if Yemen was the impetus for this new detente. Yemeni rebel spokesman Mohammed Absul Salam appeared to welcome the deal in a statement that also slammed the U.S. and Israel. The region needs the return of normal relations between its countries, through which the Islamic society can regain its lost security as a result of the foreign interventions led by the Zionists and Americans, he said. For Israel, which has wanted to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia, despite the Palestinians remaining without a state of their own, Riyadh easing tensions with Iran could complicate its own regional calculations. The government of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu offered no immediate comment Friday. Netanyahu, under pressure politically at home, has threatened military action against Iran's nuclear program as it enriches closer than ever to weapons-grade levels. Riyadh, seeking peace with Tehran, takes one potential ally for a strike off the table. It remains unclear what this deal means for America. Though long viewed as guaranteeing Mideast energy security, regional leaders have grown increasingly wary of Washington's intentions after its chaotic 2021 withdrawal from Afghanistan. The U.S. State Department did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The White House bristled at the notion that a Saudi-Iran agreement in Beijing suggests a rise of Chinese influence in the Mideast. I would stridently push back on this idea that we're stepping back in the Middle East. Far from it, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said. He added, it really does remain to be seen whether the Iranians are going to honor their side of the deal. This is not a regime that typically honors its word. Belarus, anti-Russia guerrillas take on two-headed enemy by the Associated Press. After Russia invaded Ukraine, guerrillas from Belarus began carrying out acts of sabotage on their country's railways, including blowing up track equipment to paralyze the rails that Russian forces used to get troops and weapons into Ukraine. In the most recent sabotage to make international headlines, they attacked a Russian warplane parked just outside the Belarusian capital. Belarusians will not allow the Russians to freely use our territory for the war with Ukraine, and we want to force them to leave. Anton, a retired Belarusian serviceman who joined a group of saboteurs, told the Associated Press in a phone interview. The Russians must understand on whose side the Belarusians are actually fighting, he said, speaking on the condition that his last name be withheld. 
more than a year after Russia used the territory of its neighbor and ally to invade Ukraine, Belarus continues to host Russian troops as well as warplanes, missiles, and other weapons. The Belarusian opposition condemns the operation, and a guerrilla movement sprang up to disrupt the Kremlin's operations, both on the ground and online. Meanwhile, Belarus's authoritarian government is trying to crack down on saboteurs with threats of the death penalty and long prison terms. Activists say the rail attacks have forced the Russian military to abandon the use of trains to send troops and materiel to Ukraine. The retired serviceman is a member of the Association of Security Forces of Belarus, or BIPOL, a guerrilla group founded amid mass political protests in Belarus in 2020. Its core is composed of former military members. During the first year of the war, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko realized that getting involved in the conflict will cost him a lot and will ignite dangerous processes inside Belarus, said Anton Matolka, coordinator of the Belarusian military monitoring group Belaruski Hajun. Last month, Bipol claimed responsibility for a drone attack on a Russian warplane stationed near the Belarusian capital. The group said it used two armed drones to damage the Beriev A-50 parked at the Marshalisky Air Base near Minsk. Belarusian authorities have said they requested the early warning aircraft to monitor their border. Lukashenko acknowledged the attack a week later, saying that the damage to the plane was insignificant and it had to be sent to Russia for repairs. The iron-fisted leader also said the perpetrator of the attack was arrested, along with more than 20 accomplices, and that he has ties to Ukrainian security services. Bipol and Ukrainian authorities rejected allegations that Kyiv was involved. Bipol leader Alexander Artsiru said that the people who carried out the assault were able to leave Belarus safely. We are not familiar with the person Lukashenko talked about, he said. The attack on the plane, which Azaru said was used to help Russia locate Ukrainian air defense systems, was an attempt to blind Russian military aviation in Belarus. He said the group is preparing other operations to free Belarus from the Russian occupation and to free Belarus from Lukashenko's regime. We have a two-headed enemy these days, said Azarau, who remains outside Belarus. Former military officers in the BIPOL group work closely with the team of Belarus's exiled opposition leader, Svatlana Chiskanskaya, who ran against Lukashenko in the 2020 presidential election that was widely seen as rigged. The disputed vote results handed him his sixth term in office and triggered the largest protests in the country's history. In response, Lukashenko unleashed a brutal crackdown on demonstrators, accusing the opposition of plotting to overthrow the government. Chishanskaya fled to Lithuania under pressure. With the protests still simmering a year after the election, Bipol created an underground network of anti-government activists dubbed Paramoha, or Victory, According to Azaral, the network has some 200,000 participants, two-thirds of them in Belarus. Lukashenko has something to be afraid of, Azaral said. Belarusian guerrillas say they have already carried out 17 major acts of sabotage on railways. The first took place just two days after Russian troops rolled into Ukraine. 
A month later, then-Ukrainian Railways Chief Oleksandr Kamyshin said there was no longer any railway traffic between Ukraine and Belarus and thanked Belarusian guerrillas for it. Another group of guerrillas operates in cyberspace. Their coordinator, Yuliana Shamatavitz, said some 70 Belarusian IT specialists are hacking into Russian government databases and attacking websites of Russian and Belarusian state institutions. Humanitarian parole. Many Ukrainians stuck in limbo with U.S. permission expiring. By Julie Watson, the Associated Press. San Diego. When U.S. officials at the U.S.-Mexico border stamped the Ukrainian passports of Maria and her daughter last April and gave them permission to stay for a year, she figured she would return home within months. Now, with that year almost up and the war that caused them to flee still raging, their permission to stay in the U.S., known as humanitarian parole, is set to expire April 23rd. The word worry doesn't capture what I'm feeling, said Maria, who spoke through an interpreter and asked that only her first name be used over concerns that speaking publicly would hurt their immigration case. This is something that frightens me, mainly because of my daughter and my daughter's future. The 46-year-old woman and her daughter, now 13, are among 20,000 Ukrainians in a similar situation, according to resettlement agencies. Most arrived to the United States at its southern border after fleeing to Mexico, where it was easier and faster to get a visa to enter the country in the first months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Maria's parole is tied to her work permit, enabling her to earn a living as a nanny and makes her eligible for food stamps and other public assistance. Her husband flew to the U.S. to join them in July and received humanitarian parole for two years. The Biden administration has said it is working on a fix, but so far has issued no official guidance on what Ukrainians should do. According to advocates helping the Ukrainians, the Department of Homeland Security did not respond to requests for comment. Jewish federations of North America, which provided support for the agency that helped Maria's family get settled, is among the organizations that have written to the Biden administration to renew humanitarian parole quickly for Ukrainians. Krish Omara Vignaraja, the CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, said people are scrambling to figure out what to do. One option would be to apply for asylum, but a war doesn't necessarily qualify someone for that. Even short-term solutions, like individual parole extensions, are unclear since there's no uniform guidance which leads to delays and confusion, she said. Some Ukrainians have considered returning to the U.S. border crossings where they entered to ask for an extension, but that leaves the decision up to the port director, Omara Vignaraja said. It also can be expensive to travel and requires time off work, advocates said. Some have been told by officials to write across the top of the government's parole form, re-parole, since there is no option to check for an extension, according to advocates. It highlights how ad hoc the process is, Omara Vignaraja said. These requests often go unanswered or are transferred to different agencies, and because there is no clear process in how to handle them, sometimes they are simply denied. 
The government turned to humanitarian parole as a quick fix to deal with the fallout from the many world crises that have occurred as the U.S. refugee system that was dismantled by the previous administration was being built back up. Now numerous groups are facing their permission to remain in the United States expiring in coming months, including tens of thousands of Afghans. Humanitarian parole was never meant to be over-relied on at the expense of refugee resettlement or asylum protections, said Meredith Owen of Church World Service. Lilia Lukyanchuk, a Ukrainian mother of four, has applied for asylum with the help of Lutheran Social Services, but she and her husband have not gotten an answer. Their parole expires April 16th, and it is tied to her husband's mechanic job in Jacksonville, Florida, where they live. She fears that if they're sent back, her 17-year-old son will end up on the front lines as a soldier. Of course, I'm worried because the worst-case scenario would be to be returned to Ukraine, but I have to be strong for my family, she said through an interpreter. Maria and her daughter arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border after trying to settle in four different countries. The lines at Poland's border were too long. In Hungary, they could find a motel room for only one night at a time and were told by locals that the government was not in favor of hosting Ukrainians. They went on to Belgium, where many Ukrainians were arriving, but the local school had no room for her daughter. Then in Spain, they were told it would be difficult to find work and an apartment. That's when Maria decided to go to the United States and was told Mexico was the best way. Colorado. Bobert announces she'll be a 36-year-old grandmother. Congresswoman announced family news during CPAC breakfast. By Bruce Finley, the Denver Post. Representative Lauren Boebert, Republican of Colorado, has announced that she will be a grandmother at 36 next month when her 17-year-old son's partner gives birth to a son. Boebert revealed this family news at a women's breakfast during the conservative political action conference in Maryland that ended last weekend, where she received a Mothers of Influence Award. Boebert addressed women and men at the breakfast after accepting the award. I'm going to tell you all for the first time in a public setting that not only am I a mother of four boys, but come April, I will be a Gigi to a brand new grandson, she said. Bobert's son, when she talked with him about becoming a grandmother, pointed out that Bobert made her own mother a grandmother at 36, and he suggested it was hereditary. Bobert told those at the breakfast. She then praised the values of rural conservative communities where teen pregnancy rates tend to be higher, she said, because we value the precariousness of life. Bobert has challenged abortion laws and told conference participants that she and her husband were concerned about whether her son and his partner would choose life, and they did. And we are so proud of them for making that sacrifice and being selfless in that position. Bobert's staffers on Friday confirmed the announcement. Breaking from a meeting for an interview, Bobert verified her son and his girlfriend are not married and declined to reveal the age of the girlfriend other than to say she's over 14. Colorado's age of consent is 17, with exceptions allowing unmarried consensual sex when partners are within four years of the same age. Bobert said she and her husband, Jason, plan to do all they can to support the young parents. Her son will soon graduate from high school, she said, and works at a retail tire store. 
Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, March 11th, 2023 reading of the Denver Post. My name is Doug Crane. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.